That's right, because when they suck, they suck. Mm-hmm. It's like we always say here on Super Duperstitious, which, by the way, welcome to... <laughs> it is of podcast, <laughs> the one which <laughs> does both the paranormal and, and the scientific science thing. Mm-hmm. Mm. We're good at this, With right? the comedy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm Jake. I'm Wyatt. And uh, Jake, this, you look very comfortable. I am pretty into this new setup. Having this longer cord to reach both of us with the headphones, I can now just lounge on my couch. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize how much I was wanting that until now. Meanwhile, I'll continue perching on top of your cabinets, which I enjoy <laughs> so much. You know what you did. It's fine. It's better up here. I can see the whole room from here. <laughs> Plus your old snacks that you forgot about. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll accidentally throw snacks up into the air, and I never know where they land, but... That's weird that this half of a roast beast is snacks to you. A roast beast? <laughs> you know what you I do eat cook. only roast beast and green eggs and ham. <laughs> um, it's doctor's orders, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> anyway, um, so we're back for another week. Uh, <laughs> do you have any updates you want to hit people with before we get into the episode proper? Mm. Para breakdown? Oh, yes. Basically, para breakdown, the guy behind it. I suppose he's doing his due diligence in his videos, but on a personal note, he's kind of a jerkus. It was brought to our attention that, uh, turns out he's not a great guy. So we officially revoke our endorsement of his channel. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Uh, because it sounds like jerk face, Mm -hmm. and that's not cool. Yeah. Uh, Another update. We, two weeks ago today, we launched our GoFundMe to send us (laughs) to Loch Ness for a very important expedition not vacation but expedition (laughs) as of today yes uh, yes. i want to get the most up-to-date numbers here you guys Mm. really turned out in droves uh really really happy with how this is turning out two weeks after starting our gofundme trying to raise twelve thousand dollars to go to right we have raised zero dollars on the nose Ooh, boom fantastic job guys this is awesome so we are but twelve thousand dollars away from our goal which (laughs) is yeah, you I know, think some would say 100%. Um, <laughs> my, my brain's broken. I did too much work today. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Anyway. Carry on, Jake. Just, you, you do all the talking tonight. I'll just sit here. I think that's like it for updates plant. in general. Uh, this week, we are doing, for our overarching theme. Yes. Uh, I can't think of the word. Uh, we are doing... <laughs> Urban Legends? Urban Legends. <laughs> thank you. It's not just me, is it? No, it'll never Something be just in the you. Air. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me down here in stupid land. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's where I feel most comfortable. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about urban legends once again. They're fun to do. We've done them before. Episodes, I want to say... One through a hundred. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Seven, yeah. Might be seven, or maybe that was a different one, or eight, I don't Uh, know. Maybe nine. Um, And now again in episode 42. Oh, yeah. Get ready for more of those legends from the city. (laughs) Those inner city legends. Yes. Uh, Wyatt, I believe it is your turn to kick us off. Okay. Well, what I have for you today uh, was originally, most of it, penned by Ashley Morgan. Um, I will have a link to the page on which she has posted this story. I have done my best to abridge it down from fully 21 pages, single spaced on a Word document. font. Eight point font. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no line breaks, just one continuous block of text. <laughs> Quarter inch margins. Quarter inch margin. Exactly, exactly. Uh, wrap around the back of the page miraculously. Uh, yeah, from 21 pages down to just about 10, including proposition of theory at the end. So 
I will read from that, and I hope you enjoy. I hope so, too, for both our sakes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Located off the shores of Nova Scotia along Canada's Atlantic coast, Oak Island is among approximately 360 islands dotting Mahoney Bay, or maybe it's just Mahone. Uh, To the casual (laughs) observer, the 140-acre island appears like many in this part of the province. Rocks and sand skirt the perimeter of the landmass, while native forest and brush cover much of its interior. Despite the natural scenery and serene setting of Oak Island, the story of this island's past is replete with mystery, intrigue, and even tragedy. Oh boy, the trifecta. Mm Mm-hmm. Got the MIT. (laughs) From academics to adventurers, many have grappled with trying to explain the mystery, but none have been able to get to the bottom of the money pit of Oak Island. The money pit. The money pit. Of Oak Island. You heard me right. The money pit of Oak Island. The MP of OI. (laughs) By most accounts, the story of Oak Island's money pit begins in the summer of 1795, when a teenager named Daniel McGinnis saw strange lights on an island offshore from his parents' house. According to author Lee Lamb, upon investigating the island for the source of the lights, McGinnis noticed a peculiar circular depression approximately 13 feet in diameter on the island's forest floor. Looking around, McGinnis observed that a number of oak trees surrounding the depression had been removed. In addition, McGinnis saw that a block and tackle hung from a severed tree limb directly over the shallow hole. He recruited his friends, John Smith and Anthony Vaughn, and the three teenage boys began enthusiastically excavating the curious site. McGinnis and his mates may have been motivated by tales of the Golden Age of Piracy, which occurred between 1690 and 1730, roughly, with just over 200 nautical miles separating the remote bays of present-day Nova Scotia from the thriving commercial center of colonial Boston, Pirates were known to frequent the areas near Oak Island. Hmm. Even the infamous Captain William Kidd admitted to burying an unspecified wealth of treasure in the area before his capture in 1699. Two feet... Was that... About 300 years before the Matrix, yes. (laughs) Two feet beneath the topsoil. Two feet beneath the topsoil, McGinnis and his friends uncovered a layer of flagstone extending across the surface of the opening. Underneath, the boys discovered only more dirt. They continued their excavation, as any treasure worth finding would certainly require more than two feet of digging. Deeper down, the tunnel narrowed to seven feet in diameter, and the work of their predecessors became clearer. In the clay of the tunnel wall were the impressions of pickaxes. Hmm. At a depth of ten feet, the boys discovered a layer of rotting wood timbers. The timbers spanned the width of the hole, forming a wooden platform. The ends of the timbers had been driven into the sides of the tunnel wall to firmly anchor the structure. This deliberate barrier and the sound of a hollow space beneath the timbers confirmed to the boys that vast wealth was close at hand. Awesome. I thought it was going to be like a UFO type thing to now more of a Goonies kind of thing. It is very much... It's Goonies for 300 years. (laughs) (laughs) Um... (laughs) Not quite 200, but you know... Just as before, however, after taking out the barrier, the boys found only a two-foot pocket of air followed by s- boy soil. Boil, <laughs> <laughs> boy soil. <laughs> followed by soil. <laughs> oh, God damn it! The giggle vortex now. The boys found only a two-foot pocket of air followed by soil <laughs> that had settled below. 
McGinnis and his friends carried on to a depth of approximately 20 feet where they encountered another level of wood timbers. The teenagers pulled away the second platform of wood only to find another layer of soil staring back at them. Wow. They finally gave up at a depth of 25 feet. That's a lot of digging for just some kids, like... I tell you. Digging. I know, for real. <laughs> they were much stronger and hardier back then. Yes. I'll also think of when you're young, you have basically infinite energy somehow. You do. It's always crazy seeing, like, little tiny kids. I always think, how do they have enough just calories in their tiny little bodies to have so much activity? Well, it's like, like a body weight to muscular ratio that is just so advantageous. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see. So, perhaps too convinced of treasure to quite give up on the pursuit entirely, the eldest of the excavators, John Smith, purchased the lot containing the intriguing cavernous pit that same month. Interest soon spread, and in 1803, Simeon Lins, or Simeon? I'm going to call him Simeon. <laughs> Simeon Lines, Lins, a relative of the Monkey Vaughn Lines. Family. Monkey Lines. A relative of the Vaughn family enlisted the help of Colonel Robert Archibald, Captain David Archibald, and Sheriff Thomas Harris to establish the Onslow Company. The company's efforts began in earnest in the summer of 1804. They found another platform at 30 feet, this one covered in the remnants of charcoal. After digging 10 more feet, the men were standing on yet another shelf of horizontal timbers. Jeez. Uh, this time, a sap-like substance had been spread along the seams between the logs. Whatever was stored beneath must have been worth the trouble of encapsulating the tunnel for protection. In maple syrup. In maple syrup. Because Canada. Burrowing <laughs> another 10 feet, now atop another platform of timbers, the team found fibers of coconut shells. To the men, this development seemed to underscore the importance of their efforts. Although the coconut fibers themselves held no commercial value, the debris was reassuring. The most likely source of this tropical fiber would have been somewhere in the Caribbean. And furthermore, during a time of long voyages on the high seas, coconut fibers were sometimes used to secure and protect valuable cargo. Hmm. The men tore through the lair to claim their bounty, but to their dismay, from the 60-foot depth where the coconut fiber was found, it would take the men another 30 feet of digging. Wow. And the removal of two additional timber barriers before they would make a significant discovery. Jesus. We're now 90 feet underground. Wow. Finally, at a depth of 90 feet beneath the surface, the men found a large square-cut stone tablet. On the face of the heavy stone was an inscription of strange symbols. Each character of the mysterious text consisted of a unique combination of lines, arrows, and dots. Despite its significant weight, the crew hoisted the rock from the pit for further examination. And here's an, an image of a replica of the stone. This okay. is not the original. The original is lost. Oh, it's not just in Wingdings. Okay. Yeah, it was the original Wingdings. For decades, the encoded message on the face of the rock was thought to be indecipherable. During this time, it was rumored that Smith used the rock itself as a fire back in his fireplace, while others claim it was used as a doorstep to a Halifax bookbinder's shop, or possibly even displayed in the window as an enticement to potential expedition financiers. It was not until the 1860s, around 60 years after its discovery, that the symbols were credibly transla uh, translated, hmm. transplanted. <laughs> Although this fact, like many involving Oak Island, remains disputed, many believe that Delhousie University professor of languages James Lechey successfully decoded the tablet's inscription. 
Leitchi employed a technique termed simple substitution cipher, whereby unique symbols correlate to uh, specific letters in a given alphabet. It's a one-for-one swap, basically. Hmm. Once a rational scheme is set for the symbols present in the code, a context for each letter can be constructed and meaning is extracted from the text. So applying this approach, Leitchi resolved that the stone from the money pit read, 40 feet below, 2 million pounds are buried. Jeez. And uh, you look at the characters there and sort of just assign, oh, that one means E, and it all it all works out very nicely. Cool. Back in the early 1800s now, so this is, he figures this out well after these guys are working, so we're going to jump back in time now. The Onslow Company resumed excavation, expecting to dig 10 more feet before hitting another timber structure. The team was surprised when, at a depth of 98 feet, they found their next wooden obstacle. Exhausted, one of the workers used a crowbar to probe between the timbers to quickly check whether treasure was not immediately beneath their feet. They've come this far. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just see before we go home today. And suddenly all kinds of blood started rushing out. <laughs> Almost. Um, bones, just kidding. The metal rod pierced a sealed seam between two of the timbers to feel for any potentially valuable objects. With no evidence of impending fortune, the team retired for the day. It would prove a deeply unfortunate decision. Oh, no. When the members of the Onslow Company returned to the site, they found much of the cavernous pit had filled with water. (gasps) Despite best efforts, the crew would not be able to clear the tunnel. The following year, the Onslow Company attempted to dig an auxiliary tunnel into the area of the pit to collect the treasure while avoiding the water trap. Just 12 feet into their plan, however, water filled the second burrow and the Onslow Company finally gave it up. God damn it. The pit lay undisturbed and submerged for nearly 40 years. Then in 1845, a member of the original dig, Anthony Vaughn, helped form the Truro Company together with John Gamel, Adams Tupper, Robert Creelmand, Esquire, Jotham, Macaulay, and James Pitblatto. <laughs> Some really good names here. Yeah. Also joining the Truro Company efforts was the brother of the Onslow Company's Simeon Linz, Dr. David Barnes Linz. So as far as recruiting people with a hardcore pit history, they were stacked. Nice. In 1849, the Truro Company began the fourth attempt at solving the Oak Island mystery. After some initial success, they were back into the water puzzle. The men decided to use a long, hand-operated auger to give them some idea of what was buried beyond the 98-foot-deep timber floor. At a depth of about 98 feet, the auger chewed through a layer of spruce, approximately 6 inches deep, as expected. Following the log surface, the auger sunk through one foot absent of any material consistent with Vaughn's past experiences with the pit, so he got the settled dirt. Mm -hmm. Beneath this layer... The Truro Company noticed that the auger then penetrated a series of strata consisting of four inches of oak followed by six inches of spruce before entering seven feet of clay. Even more intriguing, when the operators withdrew their probe from the pit, they found three small links of gold chain attached Mm. to the device. Fuck. (laughs) It's true, though. Uh, (laughs) That is the response. (laughs) Uh, All as one, just look at each other's head. Fuck. (laughs) Bolstered by the success, the Truro Company sent the auger down for another attempt. Get back in there, auger. (laughs) This time, the probe was cast to 114 feet beneath the surface. At this depth, 10 stories deep, by the way, the auger hit yet another platform of timbers with more oak and more coconut fibers. While little other evidence was officially found at this time, 
As the auger brought materials to the surface for the fourth time, crew members witnessed Pitblado or Pitblado, Pitblado, wipe dirt off an object before discreetly slipping the item into his pocket. Mm. Several accounts indicate that Pitblado left the island and relinquished all ties to the Truro Company expedition almost immediately thereafter. Hmm. Whatever Pitblado pocketed from the drilling had inspired him to petition the provincial authorities for a license to conduct his own excavation on the island. What a douche. What a douche, but what did he find? The, the effort failed as the pit was already engaged by the Truro team, um, and Pit Blotto f- vanishes from record at this point, taking whatever he'd found with him. Hmm. We, ne- we still don't know. The Truro team resumed their efforts in the summer of 1850, resolved to again attempt excavation of an adjacent axis shaft. Although the new shaft also filled with water, laborers observed that the water was salty and that the level of the water rose and fell with the tide. Mm. Previously, the company thought that the money pit was being inundated with water as either part of a complicated trap or as a result of the natural water table. Now the team knew that somehow it was the surrounding sea that flooded their excavations. So they began work to drain the sea. (laughs) They drank the ocean. (laughs) They actually wrote in the original drafting. They had two choices. Drain the Atlantic Ocean or... (laughs) um, That's cute. Yeah. The Truro Company investigated the area for more clues and discovered that a southern portion of the island's shore was actually man-made. The company decided to build a temporary rock dam in Smith's Cove to see if the key to the mystery could be found outside the actual tunnel. With the water held beyond, the crew uncovered remnants of a previous dam, as well as five peculiar vent openings. Tracing the vents back to shore, the investigators determined that the shafts converged into one before continuing inland toward the pit. After two attempts to find the feeder vent, the crew succeeded and wedged wood pilings into the shaft to prevent further flooding. Hmm. The men were subsequently puzzled to find that despite their best efforts, the water level refused to lower. Hmm. The Truro Company subsequently disbanded empty-handed. Damn. Uh, sounds like they're getting somewhere. Truly. <coughs> Truro. <laughs> Eleven years later, in the spring of 1861, the Oak Island Association was formed and began work at the Money Pit. The new expedition began with relatively smooth sailing, clearing the main tunnel down to 88 feet and excavating two parallel tunnels to 118 and 120 feet respectively, all with no sign of flooding as well. Cool. The 118-foot shaft was dug 18 feet west of the money pit. The plan was, at that depth, the excavators would begin tunneling east to access the entombed loot. However, just one foot shy of penetrating the money pit itself, Goddamned water flooded the access tunnel. <laughs> Fucking water. I tell you, uh, the company then turned its efforts towards the other access tunnel, 25 feet from the money pit. Here again, the main chamber, just feet away, the second access tunnel was also inundated with water. Jeez. As the team began an assessment of the cause of the flooding, the supporting timbers along the wall of the pit itself, the central pit, caved in under the pressure of the incoming flood. Mm. This caused the bottom of the tunnel to give way, bringing the total tunnel depth to around 112 feet. Wow. In an odd turn of fortune, however, when the floor of the money pit failed during this flood, pieces of debris from below washed upward through the murky water. The team discovered several items, including the bottom of a yellow dish, a piece of juniper that had been worked at either end, an oak timber, and a spruce slab scarred by the hole left by the drilling auger. 
The men installed a cast iron pump and steam engine to dispatch the water in the pit. In the fall of 1861, as the company struggled to drain the tunnel, the boiler exploded, fatally scalding one operator and injuring several others. Wow. Think about being fatally scalded, by the way. After another slew of unsuccessful years of effort, the company finally relinquished its rights to search for the treasure. I was going to ask, I was wondering when, you know, pump technology was invented and then finally that they had one. I was like, well, why didn't they use it? But there you go. It's terrible. (laughs) You don't really hear about, like, the horrifying factory deaths anymore. (laughs) But I remember when we were actually trying to do research on my folks house in Springfield, Mm. you know re the creepy stories i was telling episodes and episodes ago episode Episode three three, we were reading like incidental other articles about things happening in springfield and so many articles about people dying in factories it was really gruesome like the canister exploded taking his face with it like i was like good god man (laughs) this is so horrifying (laughs) but they were like yeah isn't that cool anyway so in 1890 (laughs) almost 100 years after its initial public discovery Excitement for the pit was reignited when a one and one half ounce copper coin was discovered on the island. Although the copper piece was found outside of the pit, it was suggestion enough at the possible wealth buried below. Energized by this potential, in 1893, Frederick Blair and S.C. Fraser incorporated the Oak Island Treasure Company in the state of Maine. Under a $30,000 lease agreement, the organization secured exclusive rights to all treasure discovered on the property for a period of three years. Hmm. $30,000 back then is like close to a million dollars now. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Um, Despite the company's enthusiasm, however, its efforts proved despairing even from the start. Hmm. After a clumsy and drawn-out financial failure to launch, the company wound up excavating one of the auxiliary tunnels instead of the actual pit itself. Oh, uh, no amount of water pumps or time would see the doomed company through. Further, in 1897, as a worker named Maynard Kaiser was being hoisted from one of the shafts to the surface, the ascension rope slipped from the pulley, casting him back into the shaft to his death. Oh, man. Another spooky death. Following this tragedy, the team resorted to drilling, again, to uncover whatever was buried below. The first team drilled down 126 feet, encountering a 5-inch layer of oak before hitting an impenetrable iron surface. Hmm. The men moved their drill one foot from the initial hole and executed a second attempt. Here, the auger passed through layers of soft stone, oak, and a deposit that seemed to consist of loose pieces of metal. Encouraged by the results, the team sent the drill back down the same borehole. At a depth of approximately 153 feet, the drill again came in contact with what the team perceived to be loose metal. Beneath the supposed metal, the auger encountered the same iron barrier and could not descend further. Hmm. When the drill returned to the surface, the men only found pieces of coconut fiber, oak splinters, and loose debris. At first, this appeared to be no different from previous attempts, but the extracted debris was transported to a courthouse in Amherst, Nova Scotia for closer inspection. There, Dr. A.E. Porter discovered amongst the dirt and rubble an unmistakable piece of parchment with the letters V.I. written on one side of the material. Eventually, the tiny script was inspected by Harvard University specialists who verified its authenticity. Hmm. More on this later. Alrighty. Another discovery made during this excavation was by drill operator William Chappell, who quietly found traces of gold sediment on the auger itself. Ooh. As with James Pitt Blotto, however, Chappell hid this valuable discovery from fellow crew members. It was not until 1931 
that Chapel's findings would come to light. Motherfucker. <laughs> Shady boy. The next year, excavators craftily poured colored dye into the money pit, reasoning that by tracing the path of the pigment, they could determine the locations of the various flood channels and ultimately obstruct them once and for all. Mm. When the team set their plan into motion, they were astonished to find the dye streaming out from the shoreline at distant points around the island's perimeter. Perhaps most surprising was that the coloring did not appear in Smith Bay, where structures thought to be flood tunnels were located in 1862 back in the day already. Mm. Further perplexing was the fact that, after multiple attempts to dynamite the indicated feeder channels, the crew seemed unable to clog the pathways and prevent further flooding. For decades, the company continued its efforts on Oak Island, changing names to the Old Gold Salvage and Wrecking Company as it went. (laughs) But success eluded the teams throughout the early 1900s. This, even despite recruiting future president Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Hmm. Yes, in 1909, at age 27, Roosevelt spent the summer on the shores of Nova Scotia as hopeful to find the treasure as anyone else who preceded him. That's amazing. And, according to written correspondence, Roosevelt nurtured an interest in the Yolk Island mystery well into his presidency. Wow. Pretty fun. Well, that also means that they're not going to find anything for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, many years later, in 1931, now we're getting to the chapel situation, um, mm-hmm. William confided the details of the gold dust he had found on the auger to Frederick Blair, founder of the Oak Island Treasure Company, in an effort to garner Blair's support as well as his permission to drill at the site. Convinced of their impending fortune, Blair signed on with the new expedition under Chapels Limited of Sydney, Nova Scotia. By that year, the site had undergone nearly a century and a half of excavation efforts, marring the island surface with shaft openings. Mistakenly, the team ended up drilling approximately six feet south of the money pit. Despite this, and the fact that the chapel expedition was only active for one digging season, the team was able to make several astonishing discoveries. Between 115 and 130 feet deep in their new shaft, the men recovered an anchor fluke, which is just part of the part of the anchor that actually bites into a rock or the bottom Mm -hmm. of the ocean. Uh, An anchor fluke sunk into the side of the tunnel. An implement resembling a 250-year-old Acadian axe, which is just your typical tree-felling axe. A miner's pick and the remnants of an oil lamp with seal oil. Hmm. Adding to the intrigue of the site, Chapel also located a triangular formation of stones situated along the south shore of the island. A man named Gilbert Hedden initiated the next significant effort on Oak Island. Prior to his interest in the money pit, Hedden was vice president and general manager of the Hedden Iron Construction Company of Hillside, New Jersey. In this capacity, Hedden grew increasingly familiar with the application of structural steel in engineering. His career also provided him with the financial means to pursue the promise of the money pit when his company was purchased by the Bethlehem Steel Company in 1931. So, in 1935, the affluent Hedden purchased the eastern portion of Oak Island and began his expedition. After a weak first year, Hedden and his contractors returned to Oak Island. Burrowing down one of the many auxiliary tunnels pockmarking the island, the team stumbled upon a miner's oil lamp with whale oil and unexploded dynamite at 65 feet. Wow. At a depth of 93 feet, they unearthed clay putty not previously found on the island, Uh, Slightly further down in the tunnel, at a depth of 114 feet, Hedden's team came across an intersecting tunnel measuring 3 feet and 10 inches wide by 6 feet and 4 inches tall. Remarkably, this chamber was lined with hemlock timbers and may have served as one of the original flood tunnels. Although promising, 
The elements discovered in 19, at this point 1937 did nothing to offset the increasing expense of the excavation. At the close of that year's dig, Hedden's operation had reached a cost of $50,000 on the order of 853000 today, Jeez. Um, which was an exorbitant amount even for the most endowed financier. With the close of the Hedden campaign, after years of building enthusiasm, a man named Robert Restall was given full rights to operate at this pit. The former stunt driver turned plumber began his excavation <laughs> supported by a relatively modest $8,000 of capital and equipment. The usual trajectory of careers. Indeed. Over the next five years, Robert Restall and his family dedicated their lives to Oak Island in the pursuit of the fabled riches. Sadly, it would all end abruptly Tuesday, August 17th, 1965. Restall and his son had been working on digging a new shaft on one of the beaches, Sometime after 2 p.m., as Restall peered over the edge of the tunnel to inspect his work, he succumbed to noxious gas emanating from the pit. Whoa. Restall then lost consciousness and fell into the watery shaft. When his son Bobby witnessed the episode, he dashed in after his father, only to be claimed by the same toxic fumes. Jeez. Unaware of what was unfolding, two nearby workers, Carl Grazer and Cyril Hiltz, also rushed in to help. Both also suffered the same fate as the Restall men. So Oak Island had now claimed a total of six people since the mystery began. Jeez. Just over one month before the tragedy that claimed the lives of the four men, Robert Restall had signed an agreement with investor and geologist Robert Dunfield. After Restall passed away, Dunfield assumed control of operations on the island. Rather than make small incisions at strategic locations, however, Dunfield's first order of business as project manager included using two bulldozers to clear 12 feet from the surface of the money pit and spread the removed clay over Smith's Cove as a way to clog the feeder tunnels that might be flooding the main chamber. Hmm. In order to transport even larger excavation equipment to the site, Dunfield ordered a causeway be built, connecting the west end of Oak Island to Crandall's Point on the mainland. With the land bridge in place, Dunfield could move operations beyond lightweight machinery. Assisted by modern equipment, the team removed a 140-foot deep by 100-foot wide crater from the money pit. Jeez. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, how could they not have found shit if they did yeah. that? <laughs> like, that's what I was thinking I would want to do from the start. Yeah, just take the entire island just out. take the thing out, yeah. <laughs> the team uncovered small shards of porcelain dishware, but consistently struggled against the tunnel's collapse as a result of heavy rains. Despite having spent countless hours and dollars excavating the main tunnel, Dunfield ultimately demanded that the money pit be refilled to create a base for, can you guess what? Some kind of drill situation? A renewed drilling campaign. Oh boy. Once his men had finished filling the gaping cavity, Dunfield began taking core samples at greater depths. Not my language. He drilled the separate six-inch holes, four separate six-inch holes, to a depth of 190 feet into the money pit. Why did they refill it? I'm so confused. They had only 50 feet to go. I also don't understand. Why would you do that? I don't... Unless the drilling equipment was just, like, too weird to get down there, but I, I feel like you would find it. a way. You're that far down. Uh. You have that much space. <laughs> it drives me crazy, too, because I was like, you were the closest one. You had the answer right there, and you're like, fill it in. Cover it up with garbage. I know. It drives me totally crazy. Um... But there it goes. He covers that thing up (laughs) and just drills down 190 feet into the money pit. From this investigation, he concluded that at approximately 140 feet, a wooden platform obstructed the tunnel. Below the timbers was a 40-foot chamber void of any material. 
This empty space was followed by bedrock. Intrigued by these findings, Dunfield sent the core samples to the University of Southern California to undergo chemical analysis. Although he kept the results confidential for some reason, they encouraged Dunfield to announce his intentions for further large-scale drilling operations in the main tunnel. After some logistical and interpersonal conflicts, however, Dunfield left the project in April of 1966 and returned to California. The next year, Daniel Blinkenship and David Tobias began an ambitious drilling campaign selling fake names. Throughout <laughs> 1967, the men bored over 60 holes into the surface near the money pit. From their drillings, the two figured out that bedrock began at a depth of 160 to 170 feet. They also found that at certain locations, there was a wooden level 40 feet beneath the bedrock itself. What the fuck, right? What? So that those were just sort of exploratory drillings. Mm -hmm. Then, in 1969, the expedition began in earnest when Blankenship and Tobias formed the Triton Alliance Limited. Selecting strategic locations outside of the money pit, Triton found a small amount of metal deposited at depths all around the pit itself. Also, in 1970, during an excavation attempt in Smith Cove, workers uncovered a U-shaped formation of logs marked with Roman numerals. The construction was thought to be the remnants of an ancient dam or harbor. Adding to the excitement of the Smith Cove investigation, the Triton Alliance team discovered a pair of wrought iron scissors, a wooden sled, a portion of an iron ruler, and other iron artifacts, including nails and spikes. When sent to the steel company, how do they determine the two? Steel Company of Canada, for testing, these materials were determined to predate 19, uh, 1790. Hmm. The following year, one of the most promising boreholes, termed 10X, was widened to fit a 27-inch diameter casing and deepened to 165 feet. During the process, the crew recovered fragments of broken concrete as well as pieces of metal chain and wire from the flooded tunnel. Several months later, after the men had satisfactorily prepared the site, the team lowered a video camera into the shaft. According to the relayed grainy images, borehole 10X terminated in a cavity carved out of bedrock. Within the stone chamber were what appeared to be a severed hand, a corpse, what? a corpse, and several treasure chests. What? Oh my god. Prompted by the video images, the Triton Alliance initiated around 10 diving excursions, but found no treasure. What? In the following years, legal and interpersonal conflict within the group led to a dead halt in excavation in 18... Or, I'm <laughs> fucking this up so hard. In 1987, not 1897. And in 1989, things only got tougher for stakeholders when revised legislation addressing the licensing of operations on the island constricted the actual possible take should treasure be discovered, while simultaneously hmm. intensifying operational costs. It soon became more feasible to operate as a tourist attraction rather than a dig site for owners of the property. Mm. The site would change hands again in various tourism capacities, but it seems the Canadian government has since grown sick of adventure. In 2010, <laughs> you hear me, Canada? Um, in 2010, the government replaced the Treasure Trove Act, which was what had constrained the stuff in the first place, with the Oak Island Treasure Act, which obliges any interested party to undergo a cumbersome licensing process with the Department of Natural Resources to access the site in the first place and provides for heavy taxes on any findings. So it's not only more expensive to begin digging, but whatever you find, you're going to get a C like a, a small fraction of. So it's deeply discouraging for any new efforts. I'm going to start another GoFundMe. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, the super duper citrus Oak Island yeah. something or other <laughs> LLC. Naturally, since its enactment, the measure has discouraged many potential treasure seekers and has inhibited activity on the once spirited Oak Island. There is currently, however, a team working at it, and there is a TV show about it. Okay. Following their efforts, I think it's in its sixth season now. Damn. Wow. Theories as to what this could be. One is that it is just simply natural phenomena, or at least partially mm-hmm. explained thereby. Under this theory, given that Oak Island is fewer than 500 yards from the mainland of Nova Scotia, the money pit may be little more than a profound sinkhole worn through a susceptible limestone substrate. According to this theory, all the artifacts recovered from the pit can be credited to debris washing into a naturally occurring subterranean system of cavities. Hmm. It makes sense to me on a certain level, yeah. but doesn't quite explain everything. No, it doesn't explain all like the evenly spaced layers of wood and stuff. Someone like, clearly did something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, number two, pirate treasure, the sexy one, a popular and widely celebrated quote-unquote theory as to what's at the bottom of the money pit. Captain Kidd maybe buried his stuff there. Uh, others believe that Kidd might have conspired with another pirate, Henry Every, who was actually considered something of a pirate king. He was one of the few pirates mm. to, in fact, retire from piracy with wealth. And it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king, Wyatt. <laughs> to use Oak Island as a type of community bank between the two. Um, some even believe that Blackest Beard, <laughs> a.k.a. Edward Teach may have buried his treasure there, given his boast that his treasure was hidden, quote, where none but Satan and myself can find it. Wow. It may also be, number three, naval treasure. Given the international volatility present since the discovery of the New World, some believe that at some point during the French and Indian War and subsequent Seven Years' War, the Franco treasure held at Fort Louisburg was or lewisburg was transferred to a sophisticated vault on oak island depending on the angle this could have been done by french or english troops Mm -hmm. the oak island mystery also bumps heads with william shakespeare interestingly enough Hmm. so this gets back into that tiny shred of parchment i mentioned before oh yeah recovered in june of 1897 by the truro company um, written on the face of the fragment were what appeared to be the letters V-I. Many observers feel that these two letters on parchment are more significant than any other treasure because of Billy Shakes. Born mm. in 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon in the English countryside, and despite little documented schooling, Billy Dunn earned a reputation as a literary genius for his remarkable ability as a playwright and poet. Everyone knows this. Wait, wait, back up. Yeah. Who is this guy? <laughs> Dillard Quakespeare. <laughs> Uh, there is a relatively well-wrought theory, though, that the man named William Shakespeare never actually authored any of the cherished plays. This mm-hmm. may also be pretty well known by now. Instead, he may have claimed the works as his own to conceal the identity of the true author. Jake, hmm? do you know who the author may have been? The Queen. The Queen, Her Royal Majesty, Sir Francis Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> The true author, Sir Francis Bacon. He has been put forward as a very likely candidate for the actual scribe. Interesting. If it was a single person. Sir Francis Bacon was a recognized scientist, scholar, philosopher, statesman, and contemporary of Shakespeare. To avoid being labeled a lowly playwright, the aristocratic Bacon secretly transferred credit to Shakespeare, goes the theory. According to some, Bacon embedded clues in many of the plays suggesting this arrangement. In Bacon's book... Silva Silverum, he details a design of a perpetual spring. 
The self-flooding tunnel described in the text thus has many theorists convinced that the parchment containing India ink lettering retrieved from the money pit represented a fragment of a set of documents that would fully and finally prove Bacon's authorship. Wow. So it kind of, yeah, it's like another one of these cases of just enough of something to set one's mind afire, if you will. Oh, very much so. That's Um, like so far from what I ever would have guessed any of this would lead to. Yeah. There's other theories, too. I don't want to get into them because I've been going forever. But, uh, yeah, I highly recommend checking out the webpage where I got all this from, www.oakislandmoneypit.com. All right. (laughs) Perfect. You can read this whole story with much more detail there. Awesome. That is a really exciting story and one that I... I got a sinking feeling as you got going that there was not going to be a conclusion to it, and sure enough, there is not. But the but, fun thing is we are now, what, 200 and some years deep, and the answer may still be, you know, the drum roll continues. It could happen in our lifetime. It could happen out. in our so, lifetime. Exactly. Man, here's hoping. One exactly. more thing to look forward to finding out more about that and finding out what the deal is with those weird shafts in, like, the top of the Great Pyramid. <sighs> I kid you not, when I was looking up diagrams of the money pit itself, which people have gone buck wild over, <laughs> I highly recommend everyone check it out because yeah. people are obsessed with this shit. They resemble, to my eye, the Great Pyramid structure as well. And I, in fact, Googled that. So very uncanny that you would bring that up as well. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that, Mr. Shell. That was You're welcome. Like, really cool. I like Yay. that a lot. Oh, I'm so glad. All of our listeners are like, and I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> the important thing is that I got to at least make a Gilbert and Sullivan reference. Uh, now, my story mm-hmm. goes a little bit of a different direction. A lot of legends build up around this thing that's going on that was very real but very mysterious. What I have is something that's just more just totally camp urban legend bullshit. Camp Town Races, here we come. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there are a lot of different descriptions of this particular spooky site but i ended up opting for the travel site backpackverse.com and their article prepare to be terrified turnbull canyon's eternal hauntings (laughs) from which i will now read with some minor edits (laughs) they should have called the eternal hauntings (laughs) (laughs) missed opportunity Mm -hmm. centuries ago the local Native American tribes call what is now Turnbull Canyon Hatugna. This roughly translates to the dark place, which is an Ooh. unusual name for such a bright and sunny region. <laughs> other people say, like, that the, is an unusual <laughs> name. Yes. Some other translations say, like, oh, it's the devil's place. Like, let's not really, like, the devil is a very decidedly Christian thing. They were calling it um, the devil's sticks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you ever play with those? I never did, but I'm not surprised that you did so. There we go. <laughs> While uh, playing hacky sack, I assume. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. I also wish that at least one version of the story would translate Hatukna as the Black Lodge. <laughs> that would be cool. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But uh, oh, wow. the name comes from the spectral residence of the canyon more than any lack of light. Indeed, the First Nations people considered it forbidden ground and refused to set foot there. Uh, when the Spanish arrived with their missionaries and guns, they didn't pay much attention to the warnings of the locals calling them Gabrielanos for their proximity to the local San Gabriel mission, the Spanish forced the poor people kicking and screaming into the canyon they feared so much. There, they were made to either convert to Christianity or be killed. Trauma. Some of the Spaniards thought that by making them face their fears, they would be more willing to accept the faith that brought them there. The opposite was true. Mm -hmm. They seemed to give up, seeming to resign themselves to their fate. Quote, Now we are without hope. Now we remain for as long as the sun rises and sets in the sky. 
said a particular shaman, according to one of the Spanish soldiers of the day. Hmm. Today, Puente Hills locals and visitors alike feel the gaze of hundreds of eyes on them as they explore Turnbull Canyon. Hikers report that they most often feel uh, get the feeling of being watched as they near Turnbull Canyon's water tower. I can show you a picture of the water tower, mm-hmm. if you like. Let me try and turn this your direction. Oh! <laughs> so, oh, weird looking. Looks like a giant thing from Doctor Who, those monster robot guys. Oh, Dalek? Yeah. Yeah. Looks like um, the old Dalek. It's covered in like, yeah, weird satellite dish type things mm-hmm. and heavily graffitied. Uh, just a kind of cool looking, weird desert it is pretty cool. situation. It'd make a good prop for like a post-apocalyptic community. Oh, totally, yeah. Two men enter. One man leaves. Tina Turner. <laughs> yes. Uh, it is thought that every First Nations individual who was killed in this area remains to this day, waiting for the sun to go out. <laughs> the next, I mean, yikes. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the next chapter in the dark history of this piece of Puente Hills um, history, I guess is the word that's missing there, begins during the Great Depression. Those were desperate times, Wyatt, mm-hmm. as you didn't know, <laughs> as Americans all over the country struggled to make ends meet. People died from starvation or disease or at the hands of other people desperate to avoid that fate. It was during these bleak years that the people of Puente Hills began to hear strange rumors of the new residents of Turnbull Canyon. A large group of men and women, no children, wearing black robes and enacting strange rituals each night. Spooky. They were numerous and organized, and their business was horrifying. <laughs> One witness, carefully sneaking up on their camp, was able to take a close look at one of their rites and return to tell the tale. Mm. A young boy, 12 years old at most, was strapped to a cross in the center of a circle of people. Entranced and paralyzed with fear, the Punta Hills residents watched as the robed figures danced around and around, chanting in a language he could not recognize, but sent a chill down his spine. (laughs) After a time, the chanting suddenly increased in intensity. The cross was hoisted upright, the child struggling but unable to cry out through the rough cloth that had been stepped into his mouth. Mm. Pulling the cross back down and then hoisting it up the other way, the townsman finally truly realized what was happening, but he could do nothing. The cultist struck the boy again and again, blood flying out from from every direction. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> blood just shooting in at him. Um, while he's on this upside down cross I'm also just imagining uh, it going from everywhere everywhere <laughs> yes, from everywhere to everywhere else the entire universe <laughs> became blood <laughs> you didn't hear about that it was a really big deal back in the 30s the blood verse <laughs> eventually their fury subsided and so did the blows peering close the Puente Hills residents breathed a sigh of relief to see the boy was still breathing what happened next he would never forget for that first part he was thinking he he's might forget. like yeah exactly <laughs> I, i'll probably uh, yeah. that was pretty freaky but you know whatever they took him away they simply moved uh, removed the boy stuffing him into a large sack and tossing it roughly into a wagon now that is horrible <laughs> yes watching a small child be beaten like to within an inch of his on life an upside down cross upside with people cross. chanting and like being all fucking creepy that's not great but it's it's probably fine but seeing them take him i would describe else, it as forgettable honestly yes. <laughs> The man- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thrown roughly into a bag. <laughs> and then taken elsewhere. <laughs> uh, the man returned to town to tell the tale, but he was not believed until some months later when a rash of kidnappings and disappearances struck the area. I got an ointment for that. <laughs> By the time the townspeople <laughs> gathered their weapons and rode out to Turnbull Canyon to put a stop to the horror, the cult had scattered. They were gone. Hmm. As for the boy, he was never seen again. I'm assuming all the other kidnappings, so that was also <laughs> true. Um... <laughs> 
It is thought that this cult supplied others like it around the country with sacrifices, sanctifying and preparing the children for their ultimate fate. Through like an Etsy, like an evil Etsy. Yes. <laughs> also, I guess in this instance, sanctifying means tenderizing. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> uh-huh. Recently, there have been some disturbing reports of very specific graffiti around Puente Hills. Die, Jesus, it says. Whoa. <laughs> but obviously, as Sideshow Bob would happily point out, this is just German for the Jesus. <laughs> it might be nothing, or it might <laughs> signal the return of some very, very bad people. Or it might just be some fucking graffiti. I don't know. I like that it's very specific graffiti. <laughs> yes. That's Not- like, you know, non specific graffiti, which is like, you know, it's just whatever. <laughs> Not too long after those dark days in the 1930s, so still, it's not too long after, but it'd be weeks afterward if it's still, I don't know, uh, an insane asylum was opened in Turnbull Canyon. Naturally, naturally. It took in patients from Puente Hills and the surrounding environs and was meant as a place of healing. I mean, if it was called an insane asylum at any point in American history, it was decidedly not even meant to be a place of healing. Um, for It was like a dark bank for your weird family member. For deposits, but no withdrawals. Um, See episode 18, Toilet Morpheus for more on that. (laughs) Our last last foray into urban legends. Indeed. It was not a place of healing. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Nobody knows exactly what went on there. (laughs) The the article even corrected themselves. But the psychic scars of the place still haunt Puente Hills. Mm -hmm. The asylum lasted less than 10 years burning down in a mysterious fire in the early 1940s. Mysterious or convenient? Yeah, <laughs> Erasing all evidence that a place existed so you have plausible deniability when met with the claims that it never actually existed? Hmm. Perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, since Jake, that, come on. Since that day, <laughs> explorers visiting the ruins have reported intense feelings of fear or even panic. For some Whoa. people, especially the psychically gifted, it's difficult to stand in the ruins. Mostly because they can't Find, find them is <laughs> very difficult. <laughs> difficult <stand-up. laughs> you feel as though something is reaching inside your brain and gently caressing what they find there. That doesn't <laughs> <laughs> that put me in another kind of panic, if you know yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> the most dramatic and terrifying evidence of the ghost of this place comes from the early 1960s. A group of Fuente Hills teenagers was hiking through Turnbull Canyon and came across the asylum. Again, no consensus that I can find <laughs> of where it is, and no obvious records that it ever was. Mm-hmm. Giddy with youth and fun, and probably a little chemical assistance, uh, one of the boys okay. found an old... Which li- chemical? All of them. What? Probably Lysol. <laughs> Just Lysol. <laughs> Often Lysol. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the boys found an old electric shock treatment device. <laughs> he put it on and strapped it to his head, shouting about how he was going to burn. He's going to be fine, I'm sure. Yeah. He wasn't wrong. He got his wish. Inexplicably turning on, though there had been no electricity in the building in decades, the boy began to shriek as thousands of volts coursed through his body. Mm -hmm. Standing by, unable to take action and helpless to save him, the boy's friends watched as first his hair, then his clothes, and finally his eyes and skin began to smolder and burn. They say it only took a few seconds for him to die, but it must have felt like an eternity to him and the hapless onlookers. Gross. Poltergeists are often able to exert small amounts of influence on physical objects, but this goes beyond the pale. The ghost here must be fantastically strong to have done this, and they must hate the living beyond measure. Is this still the article talking? Yes. They just went off. Mm. So this is me talking now, especially if they're making long dead electric shock equipment have more power than it ever did during peak use when did it was in all like the ghosts mint in condition. The world <laughs> yes. Electroshock therapy, while fucked up, 
was not the same as the electric chair. <laughs> yeah, right. Which also, in turn, did not incinerate those who were in it. No. Oh, my God. Yeah. Other ghosts have been seen in the area as well. Children, possibly victims of the cult. These ghosts weren't, they weren't seen, though. <laughs> they were experienced. Yes. Um, Go on. Children, possibly victims of the cult, sometimes appear swinging from trees. So uh, scary. Stick around too long, and it is said they'll open their eyes and stare at you with silent accusation. <laughs> Just as the town of Puente Hills did not help them, there's nothing modern-day visitors can do either. The children, the teenager, the mental patients, and the natives are all dead. There's mm. no hope for them. They will remain in Puente Hills for as long as the sun rises and sets in the sky. Ooh, they're drawing... There's a callback, I think. <laughs> the curse of Turnbull Canyon has claimed them all. Oh, okay. There's also a murder there about five years ago. Uh, that actually happened, or at least a missing woman's body was found and she had been murdered. Had she been murdered the, 300 years prior by getting beaten up on a cross? Uh, no, she just had been like shot or something. I can't uh, remember. Um, it was just a, a, just a murder, she, but it was not a curse-related thing or anything. It curse-related. Okay. So the question I always ask in this instance is, uh, the fuck? <laughs> I won't claim to have done deep, extensive research trying to find sources on all the claims about the history of Turnbull Canyon. What I did do was look for the best summary of all that's supposed to have happened there and found that basically every iteration cites the other iterations as sources. Uh For just a great big circle of citations that leads nowhere. The gray twilight zone. Yeah, it's not true for all of them, but a lot of them seem to point to each other. So like, well, where is the origin of this shit? Right. Actually, that's not entirely true. A few of them link to a highly improbable forum called... SelicaSupra.com. Celica Supra? Which is a place for Toyota owners to talk about cars. Are you fucking kidding me right now? This is another bodybuilding forum <laughs> exactly. situation. Uh, I'll link to the specific post. It's a very long history of a lot of the same stuff. Oh my god. User TRD83 Supra XX wrote in 2004. Supra XX. In 2004, wrote, quote, a scary story about Turnbull Canyon in California, parentheses, long story. And it was a long story. It's the main reason I didn't use his is because it was a longer length thing. version of that. Yeah, which details a lot of the same stuff, plus some personal accounts of his. Oh my god, I cannot wait. Yeah, so I'll definitely link to that on a separate forum on Drifting.com. This is the weirdest. It's exactly one month earlier, thing. one month to the day earlier. This was on March twelfth, two thousand four. Uh, the other one was April 12, 2004. That's spooky. User Coil Over Kid posted the exact same text. Oh. Um, I can't tell from their profiles if they're the same person. I can only access the profile of Coil Over Kid. I have to be a member of the forum. Um, Did you join? So I guess I should, I, maybe I will like, in the next couple of days to see if I can find out if they are the same person or not. They, I assume they must be it's on car forums talking about this weird story of that Turnbull Canyon. That is so wonderful. Yeah. It seems awfully strange for the same spooky story to appear on two different car forums. I don't know why they're on car forums. <laughs> it's very... It's especially funny because in that first one, TRD83SuperXX wrote the whole story out. And then his next response, like people are like, oh, it sounds scary. Oh, man, I've been there. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go there sometime try and do some drifting. And it's just like... It's just so he's just looking for spooky places to drift. <laughs> exactly. Like after him telling his whole story, like, oh, I did some research. I found all this. Yeah, I'm going to go there and drift. <laughs> it's just like, what is happening? As for the canyon itself, uh, the Wikipedia page for Turnbull Canyon makes only the briefest mention of just the beliefs about the place and says nothing of the supposed crimes that occurred there. So like as far as, like I'd heard somewhere else the story that like 
a teenager had accidentally been electrocuted there by some exposed wires that were somehow still active. Mm-hmm. Then finding out the actual story is that he electroshock equipment that turned on on it somehow on its own mm-hmm. and killed him. Right. Um, but there's no actual historical record showing that anyone died there of right. those causes. No seeming historical records of cult murders of any kind. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. If there was any historical accuracy to the cult stuff, it would probably be a noteworthy mention in an encyclopedia entry, I would assume. Mm-hmm. I'm also not trying to use a lack of Wikipedia presence as a smoking gun. Yeah. Uh, indeed, any travel site talking about the canyon will either talk about it being a cool hiking destination mm-hmm. or the hauntedest place ever. Oh, my God. There doesn't seem <laughs> right. to be a whole lot of mention of both. Right. It really seems to depend right. entirely on the agenda of the site talking about it. So. Right. The travel places that are more no-nonsense, like, here's a cool place to hike, here's what it's like. This is a physical location. That's, like, their whole story. And other ones, they only talk about how it's, like, all the creepy stuff has happened there. Oh, man, there's a gateway to hell there. Um, (laughs) Of course there is. Yes, that was one of the things I didn't find in this particular story, but supposedly there is a gateway to hell somewhere in that uh, canyon. Naturally. It's the best place to drift. Yes, near hell. (laughs) The road is much hotter, so your tires... (laughs) can slide that much more readily yes. across it. <laughs> There's also nowhere online where I can find any historical truths to there ever having been an asylum there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what mm-hmm. seems to have... Well, it burned entirely to the ground. Right, exactly. <laughs> but like, there's no record I could find of it being there to begin with or any fire happened that it very it. easily like, may have been built on top of the gateway itself that's probably what happened and the hellfire just burned it up so and you better believe that hellfire burned it all the way up and all the way down <laughs> and all the way back down <laughs> to hell of course <laughs> yes <laughs> so what seems to have happened to turnbull canyon is that it became a catch-all for the most popular urban legend tropes mm-hmm. at the same damn time if ghosts satanic cults insane asylums um there's some versions that had like deranged murderers who might have escaped mm-hmm. from the asylum, mm-hmm. missing people, all happening at once, all in the same place. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm calling this shit almost. Sumble com- Canyon? <laughs> oh, man, I should have. Uh, I'm retroactively calling this Sumble Canyon. <laughs> I was going to say almost completely apocryphal, but I like yours a lot better. <laughs> I've been waiting for 10 minutes to say it. <laughs> Thank you very much for providing that. So that is the story mm-hmm. of Turnbull Canyon, which when I first heard about it on some listicle somewhere about creepy urban legend places, seemed like it had enough interesting stories about it to be worth digging deeper. Mm-hmm. When I dug deeper, I was like, oh, they're all, it's not like all these stories kind of came together. It's like they all happen at the same time in every retelling, <laughs> right. all these crazy things. I couldn't Everything find any. insane happened. I did find some different like personal accounts. There was one fun personal account from our old friendly website unexplained hyphen mysteries.com <laughs> and but it's a very long story and it mostly adds up to kind of the story of like the weird ritual sacrifice thing and someone witnessing it this is someone oh, witnessing yeah. like the kind of replaying of the ghosts enacting that again it's kind of interesting i'll maybe look to that too if anyone's interested why in that. not yeah just someone talking about like going there and getting with his girlfriend and seeing this all happening and finding out that and they all disappear so it's like seeing one of these sacrifices happen but it's the ghosts replaying it again or something like that. So oh, it's a, true. an added layer of spook factor to it. Was he drifting at the time? or I don't think he was, but <laughs> the, um, I should I don't think. I should I don't, check. I should check because I feel like it's possible. <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> I caught out of the corner of my eye during a super dope drift <laughs> that there were 20 ghosts. <laughs> at least maybe 25 ghosts. And they were so impressed. They were, they were like, yo, that's a dope drift. <laughs> But then they were beating this kid up. 
<laughs> it made me really sad, but I didn't want to show my girlfriend, so I got really scared. <laughs> and then we went to Taco Bell. <laughs> so that is the story of Turnbull Canyon. Very nice. And it's a place, it sounds like it's a cool, like a four mile loop trail to hike or something. <laughs> so it's like, I would like to go check it out. <laughs> yeah, it sounds kind of nice. It's like a lot of uh, kind of desert landscape kind of stuff. There's like some nice hills. It's pretty good, like some for like workout and stuff. I love sycamore trees, I guess, which are always pretty. Mm-hmm. And some of them like, oh, by the way, people seem to think there's paranormal stuff here, but whatever. But yeah, <laughs> like, goofy. That's as much as they'll mention it, if at all, which they usually right. don't. Right. So somehow at some point, people got the idea. I mean, desert locales can look creepy at night, certainly, because it's sure. so remote. Sure. And it's, I think, not too far from LA as far mm. as to make the trek out there to do stuff. So if you're going out of the city and you want to go to this rural area, that I guess it makes sense that people might try and make some kind of mystique around it. Yeah, um, some some places they just, once you get the rock rolling, it's like the place to put the strange story. Exactly. As far as like, yeah, that water tower being a thing, it's like, well, it's, right. it's a weird structure in the middle of nowhere. It's going to seem just kind of out of it's place. It's a little strange, yeah. Makes it odd. The cult stuff sounds like just straight up 80s satanic panic stuff. Exactly. I feel like that's probably without added in. Right. Always you want to have like the Native American ghost kind of factor. Um being a right. thing. It's, it's just like yeah it's just like oh what can we what kind of claims can we make that sound spooky and sound believable and can't be confirmed or denied right right pretty much <laughs> yeah so that's what i got for you this week i enjoyed it very much thank you very much jake before we go do yes. we want to shout out a cool friend of the show sharon hill sharon hill Someone with interests very much following our own. Yes, I'd say we have mutual interests very much in in so far as... We like the spooky stuff. But we also take a skeptical approach. She's the author of a book called Scientifical Americans, (laughs) which examines the pseudoscientific approaches of most paranormal researchers nowadays and how, while mainstream scientists are not infallible, they at least apply the scientific method to what they do. Right. And the same could also be true of paranormal research. It totally right. could happen. You can make your research more more valid, valid just with a different set of approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, she also is the co-host of 15 Credibility Street, which is a podcast which carefully breaks down questionable claims from the wide world of weird things. Mm-hmm. And also creator of Spooky Geology, <laughs> which is a fun site. Mm-hmm. The scientific look at cool natural phenomena, especially rocks and stuff. Mm-hmm. Kind of a more informed, less douchey, far more interesting take on the topic we hit up in episodes 19 and 20 <laughs> in our right. uh, super superstitious special report on earth energies and such. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of like, <laughs> that kind of stuff from someone who actually has expertise. Right. And it's cool. So Sharon Hill, just a shout out to you. Sharon thanks Hill. for listening and thanks Friend for the show. being cool. Yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate you. If you guys want to donate to our, our GoFundMe, Go send us to Loch Ness. Send us to Loch Ness. Please do. We'll find Nessie. Uh, I don't know if we want to make another... What was the, what we want to find? Oh, a GoFundMe to establish a company for us to go dig up on Oak Island. Yeah, maybe we'll do that after Loch Ness. <laughs> yeah, we'll say, well, there's going to be plenty of time. One $12,000 mission a year. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. Um, and if it's any <laughs> indication from previous efforts, I think the GoFundMe to get us up to Oak Island would have to be on the order of probably $1.5 million. Cool. Okay. So, well, yeah. So we got to start somewhere. We'll start with the 12 and then we'll, we can reach out to, uh, Mr. Musk, yeah. the, the Musk man. God. He'll make some kind of weird pneumatic tube to fire like a trains down into the pit. <laughs> yes. Well, no one used that dumb sub he made. Maybe he can go down into the tunnel. There you go. 
sub it up. Fuck that guy. He made a anyway, sub? <laughs> yeah. This really impractical tiny submarine to hmm. go into that tunnel in Thailand. Oh. The caves. Yeah. yeah. Way to be a hero, dude. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> if you guys have any questions, comments, yeah, uh, suggestions, stories of your own, any of that sort of ilk. Hit us up at contact at superduperstitious.com. It would be They'll much obliged. Get right to us. And uh, yeah, in the meantime. Catch you next episode. Thanks for joining. Yeah. yeah. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.